Our text this afternoon is Revelation 14, verses 14 through 20. We are taking up from where we left off this morning. Revelation 14, the verses 14 through 20. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the clouds swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and the blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. After the sermon, let's sing together. Hymn 10, stanzas 1, 8, and 10. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this morning we saw how our Lord Jesus Christ defends his church. And he does that not just by being a wall of fire around her, but he also goes on the offensive, bringing punishment and judgment on the unbelieving world. We saw just how far our Lord Jesus Christ will go on the day of judgment. He will take the devil. He will take the two beasts. He will take every unbeliever and throw them into hell, into the lake of fire, where they will be tormented day and night forever and ever, without peace and without rest. What we learned is that this is meant to encourage us to stay the course. If we know where our world is headed, if we know about the lake of fire, why would anyone give in to seduction? Why yield to persecution? Why become one with the world which is going on a wide, slippery slope to hell? Yes, why indeed would you do that? Stay the course, fight the good fight of faith, you know who your Lord and Savior is, hold on to him and look forward to the reward that awaits us. That brings us to our text this afternoon, which is actually quite closely related to our text this morning, but it becomes more focused, talking not just about the eternity of the new heavens and earth and the lake of fire, but focusing particularly on the day of judgment. On the day of judgment, our Lord Jesus Christ will come, and he will make a separation between believers and unbelievers. And that judgment is described in our text in horrible terms for the unbeliever. Talks about the unbeliever being thrown into the winepress of God, being crushed so that their blood 
runs for 1,600 stadia as high as the bridle of horses. We see that John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is not afraid to use the language and the imagery of the Old Testament. It's very violent. It's very horrifying. But he states it very boldly. That is offensive to many people. Certainly to the modern man and woman, boy and girl. Today, people do not like to be manipulated. They do not like authority. And they certainly don't like threats. And so the suggestion sometimes comes out. The book of Revelation, is it not outdated? We can talk about the love of God. We can talk about the comfort that God gives us. But why should we talk about judgment? Why should we talk about hell? Why should we talk about people's blood flowing as high as the bridle of horses? Well, in a way, we answered that question already this morning. If we want to understand the full gospel and the full work of God, we have to understand that he is working for a day, working toward a day, when he will separate good from evil, believer from unbeliever, because it's the only way he will institute a new world where every man and woman may live to the praise and the glory of God. But we also need to understand that talking about hell, talking about judgment, is an important part of the gospel to assist us in staying focused on our Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll I'll give you an example of what we're talking about here. One of the commentaries that I'm using on the book of Revelation is written by Craig Keener. And Craig Keener, when he's writing about this passage, he writes this. A young atheist chose to consider the claims of Christ immediately rather than deferring the decision because the doctrine of hell made the stakes too high to ignore. Twenty-four years later, that former atheist remains a committed Christian and is writing this commentary. Craig Keener, writing his commentary, says, 24 years ago, I was an atheist, but what shook me awake and what made me focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ is to realize there is a day of judgment, of reckoning, a day of hell, And it is necessary now to wake up by the grace of God, embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So when we talk this afternoon about the day of judgment, we do that without fear. We do that without getting our our back out of shape as we're a little upset with this subject. But we approach it carefully and respectfully trying to understand what God is doing that we may be focused on the importance of believing and knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior. We summarize our text in this way. The Son of Man brings in the harvest of the kingdom. We will look at three things. Jesus Christ in his glory, harvest of believers, and then finally the harvest of unbelievers. So in our first point, we're talking about Jesus Christ in his glory. And we are focusing particularly on verse 1, where we read, John is receiving a new vision. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud. And seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Now this image of a white cloud is an image of of glory, majesty. 
We know that in Scripture, white symbolizes purity and holiness. In fact, we will all be clothed in garments of righteousness which have been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. And cloud, in the Old Testament, when God appeared at the temple or on Mount Sinai, on Mount Zion, then he appeared in the cloud. It hid something of his glory. So the cloud represents the presence and the glory of God. So a white cloud coming down symbolizes and speaks of God himself drawing near in his holiness and in his glory. Now there's somebody seated on that cloud, one like a son of man. We know from the book of Daniel, and we know from the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and from Revelation 1, that the son of man is Jesus Christ himself. Now, the amazing thing of that designation, Son of Man, is that is it emphasizes both the humanity and the divinity of Jesus Christ. Now, John, in his vision, he sees the Son of Man coming down. John knows him. This is his friend. They spent years together. John was a disciple of Jesus Christ. They ate and they drank together. They, they lived together. They were bosom friends. And at the death of Jesus on the cross, Jesus said to John, John, you take care of my mother Mary. And in fact, there are some who believe that John took care of Jesus' mother's Mary even when he moved to Ephesus, and that is where she died. John knew Jesus the man. This was his friend. He took care of Jesus' mother until the end. But when he sees Jesus Christ coming on the clouds of heaven, it's not just a man. It's not just his buddy. It's not just getting together for old time's sake. This is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's God. God in his holiness. God in his glory. God who is coming down to bring the world to its final conclusion, to the fulfillment of redemptive history, a full heaven and a full hell. Now, the fact is, we read that Jesus Christ is seated on the cloud. There's an image of someone who's very comfortable, very relaxed. He isn't hanging over the edge, looking at what's going down, anxious. He's seated on the cloud. He knows where he's going. He's got rights. He's got something to do, and he's going to do it. Now, what's going down in the world is a war. We've been learning that about the fiery red dragon seeking to devour Christians. We heard about the beast from the sea and the beast from the dry land and how Christians are being seduced and persecuted relentlessly. But when Jesus is coming, he's not armed to the teeth. He's not surrounded by angels with swords and weaponry. He hasn't got all kinds of defensive bulwarks. He calmly comes down as the one who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Everything is about to stop and submit to him. He is wearing a golden crown, which, which symbolizes his power and authority. He's got a sharp sickle. Some would say, there's a weapon. A sickle's not a weapon. If you're a farmer, you know a sickle is not a weapon. A weapon is a farm implement. It's used for harvesting. This is the king. This is the great harvester who's going to take every human being on earth and deal with them in a way that is appropriate to our Lord Jesus Christ himself. And we will see that. It's a great comfort to us, brothers and sisters, just to see this image of our Lord Jesus Christ coming down, seated on that white cloud. 
We know what's going on in our world. We know that there is a war. We know how the devil is working in our world, persecuting Christians, also seducing Christians. We think of how our own country caught up in a love affair with money and material things, with a lust for different and perverse forms of sexual immorality, a love for the human body, caught up in alcohol and drugs. But that day is going to end, brothers and sisters, and the devil knows it, and he is afraid. Do you think that the devil is afraid right now? Absolutely. We read in James 2 that you believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Just like the demons were afraid of Jesus Christ when he cast them out, they all listened to him. They were all afraid of him. There isn't a day that goes by and the devil is not afraid of Jesus Christ. That's why he's so desperate. He's trying to do so much destruction in our world. Because he knows that when Jesus Christ appears on that white cloud coming down from heaven, everything will stop for him. He cannot do anything more. Christ will come on his day and he's glorious. He's powerful. He's king. And he will come for the redemption of his people and for the punishment of anyone who has dared to oppress him or his church. We know that that's the way it will be when Christ returns. And that return could occur at any moment. That brings us to our second point. We read in verse 15, Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. John speaks of another angel that connects us to the three angels we heard about this morning. And it shows that our text of this morning and this afternoon are very closely related to each other. Now an angel comes out of the temple in heaven and gives a command to Jesus Christ to reap the harvest on earth. And it comes as a bit of a surprise to us. Since when do angels order Jesus Christ around? We thought it was the other way. We thought that it was Jesus Christ who gives orders to angels. But we have to understand this in the context. The context is this, our Lord Jesus Christ is coming. And when the angel comes out of the temple, he actually comes from God himself, from the Father. So it is the Father saying to Jesus Christ, the time is ripe. Now is the time for you to go out and reap in the kingdom of heaven. Reap in all the believers. Still, we're a little bit puzzled. We thought that Jesus Christ received the scroll of history, can open the seven seals. Jesus Christ is running this world. Nothing happens. The wind doesn't blow. A leaf doesn't unfurl. A child's not born, except Jesus Christ makes it happen. He controls everything. So why does the Father have to say to him, now, Jesus, the time is ripe. Now you can, you can bring everything to its conclusion, to its final stage. But you know that our Lord Jesus Christ said on a number of occasions during his earthly ministry, I don't do anything unless the Father tells me. I do only what my Father tells me to do. And you may also remember from Matthew 24 that Jesus said to his disciples, no one knows about that day or hour of my return, 
not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now since then, since Jesus Christ went into heaven, he does know the hour. He does know how history will unfold. But he's still making clear, even here in this passage, I will not come. I will not judge this world until I have the word from my Father. When he gives the signal, then I will come. Then I will judge believers and unbelievers. Brothers and sisters, there's a, a profound message in this of great comfort. We read that the angel, and thus the Father says, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. Timing is everything. The harvest has to be ready. It has to be ripe or Jesus can't come. Just imagine Jesus would come too early. Imagine that a child whom God has elected from before the foundation of the world is not yet conceived and not yet born. What if somebody whom God has chosen before the world is made has not yet heard the gospel or come to faith? What if somebody has left the church and left Jesus Christ, but it is God's intention still to bring that person back, but Jesus comes too early, and that person will be judged and will go to hell? What our text is saying is, nothing will occur too early. The last child will be conceived and born. The last person whom God has elected will be brought to faith and only then will Jesus Christ come to judge the living and the dead. We also learn this from the parable of the wheat and the weeds. When the weeds have been sown in that field and they're starting to grow, the servants say to the master, why don't we go and pull those weeds up now before they choke out any more wheat? And and the master said, While you are pulling the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. We understand what that means. But, brothers and sisters, it also should shape the way that we pray and the way that we think about the end of the world. How often have you prayed, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I would like you to come now because this world... It's so awful. I'm being seduced. I see what's happening in my family. Come now, please. You can understand that prayer. But that prayer should always be coupled with the prayer, but Lord Jesus Christ, don't come too soon. Finish your plan. Let the gospel go out to the whole world. Let everybody who has been chosen from before the foundation of the world be brought to faith that the harvest is complete and that it is ripe and then Christ can come and gather it all in. But when that day is ready and when it comes, Jesus Christ will return on the clouds of heaven and he will bring all the wheat, all the believers into the granary to use the image of the harvest. In the parable, Jesus Christ says, gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. And in our text we read, so he who was seated on the clouds swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was harvested. We have to understand that that will be a beautiful moment for our Lord Jesus Christ. All those for whom he shed his blood. All those to whom he gave his word and spirit so that they came to faith. 
all those that He has been protecting from the ravages of the devil in our world, this will be the day that He can wipe away every tear from their eyes. Put on them this garment of righteousness, this, this robe of pure white. Bring them into the wedding feast of the Lamb, that Jesus Christ may sit with His bride, with all believers, together there in the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, and celebrate a peace and a joy for eternity. It's the day that our Lord Jesus Christ longs to see fulfilled. And it's also a, a, going to be a wonderful day for us, brothers and sisters. You know, a question that, that I often have, not just from children and young people, but also from adults, is questions about the day of judgment, and they are afraid. Believing people in the church are afraid of the day of judgment. It will be a terrible day. All my sins will be revealed. What will God do to me? But if there's one thing that Scripture makes clear, and certainly our text makes clear, and we also sang that this morning in the, in the final hymn, if there's one thing that's clear, is that for a Christian, the last day of the world will not be a scary day. It will be a day of glory, of hope and vindication. Yes, our sins will be mentioned, but Jesus Christ is standing there and he says to the Father, Father, I've got that all covered in my blood. And the Father says, yes, and it's all washed away to be remembered no more and not held against them. And you know, brothers and sisters, when you think of the end of the world, you think to yourself sometimes, I'm glad to to be alive, to live my life and serve my Lord. But how I look forward to that last day. I have run with perseverance the race that is set before me. But I am tired. I am weary. I have seen the tactics of the devil. I have seen how much damage he's done in this world. I've seen what he's done to me and to my family. How I long for that day that Jesus Christ will appear and take a sharp sickle, that beautiful harvesting instrument of the kingdom of heaven, and gather us all in. But I don't have to weep anymore. I don't have to deal with sickness and sin and seduction anymore. But to enter a a new and a glorious world to be with my Lord Jesus Christ is a day of hope, a day of vindication and victory for every believer. And more, more, brothers and sisters, also... It's a day of unbelievable, beautiful unity. We will be united with our Lord Jesus Christ. For the first time to see Jesus Christ face to face, my Lord and my Savior, to feel his hand wipe away the tears from our eyes, to know that we can celebrate with him forever the wedding feast of the Lamb. And a unity also with all believers to meet Paul and Peter and John, to meet David and Abraham and Noah, Adam and Eve, Zeth, Abel, to meet my dad and mom that I haven't seen for so many years, for you to meet your husband or your wife who went on to be with the Lord so many years ago, to see our son or daughter killed in an accident, To meet our grandchild that we never met because they died before they were born. But we'll be with them all. Every believer, all God's people, gathered together 
into a, a new city whose architect and builder is God. To be together without pain, without suffering, without sin, without death. An eternity with our Lord, with our brothers and sisters. Oh, how we long for that day. We long for that day to come. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And that gives us so much encouragement, brothers and sisters, to think also of our text this morning. We know that the devil, the two beasts, Babylon the Great, our world, is out to destroy the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you are being targeted. You are persecuted. You are seduced. You undergo trials and tribulations to make you break in your faith with Jesus Christ. But when you know what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for you, also personally, died for your sins and made you a child of God, when you know what hope he will bring to you on the last day of the world, you know you're not going to lower your guard. You're not going to stop running with perseverance the race that is set before you. Take up your cross. Follow Jesus. Let the devil give you his best shot, but you are not going to let him unsettle you. You have the Holy Spirit. You have the Word of God. You have hope. You have the promises. And clinging to that, we can suffer for a little while for the surpassing worth of an eternity of glory with our Lord Jesus Christ. That brings us to our final point, and we recognize that our text is speaking about a double harvest. There's the harvest of the wheat, which is believers. And there's the harvest of the weeds, which is unbelievers. We read in verse 17, another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Angel comes out of heaven, out of the temple, sent by God himself. And we may be surprised that it is now an angel with a sickle versus Jesus Christ. Now angels have the sickle. Angels are doing the harvesting. Angels will do the judgment, but we know that's true. Christ said that in his parable in Matthew 13. As the weeds are pulled out, pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So we understand that on the last day of the world, God, our Lord Jesus Christ, will also use the angels in the final harvest of gathering together the unbelievers for judgment. Now we also read of another angel, verse 18. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. This is the angel with fire who comes from the altar. We know him. We heard of him before. In Revelation 18, between the opening of the seven seals and the blowing of the seven trumpets, we read about this angel. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of the saints, went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it to the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, 
flashings of lightning, and an earthquake. So that angel at the altar who holds the fire, who holds the censer, what is in that censer, and this is symbolism, what is there is your prayers, my brothers and sisters. All the times that you endured trials and tribulations, when someone you loved was in the hospital or dying, when one of your children was being seduced by the the wiles of the devil, when you yourself were being threatened with the loss of your job because you would not comply with unethical demands, and you cried out your heart to God, your prayers were not minimized, they were not ignored. But this angel tenderly gathered all your prayers together and brought them before the throne of God. And when he did so, there was a hush. There was a quiet still in heaven. As our Lord Jesus Christ says, Father, one of the children is crying. One of the, one of the children is calling out to us. The Father says, we listen and we will act. And that final act will come on the day of judgment when all our cries of hurt and despair and help to God are answered. When we think of the day of judgment, brothers and sisters, we pray a lot. We certainly should as Christians. We pray for a day when our children will no longer be seduced by the culture of the world in which they live. We weep for a day that we will never have to go again to the hospital or stand at the gravesite. We pray for a day when there will be no more abortions, no more mercy killings, no more destructions of family. We pray for the day that our Lord Jesus Christ will return, deal concretely with sin, deal with the brokenness of life and bring it to an end. And take the devil... And take the unbelieving world which refuses to repent and deal with them concretely. Separate them from us. Liberate us from a broken and sinful world and make a new world, a new heaven and a new earth where we perfectly restored by the Holy Spirit will never weep, never sin, and never be hurt again. That day is coming and it comes in an answer to your prayer. We hear God's command, take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine because its grapes are ripe. This world is ripe, ripe with its sin and immorality. God has heard it all the way to heaven and he's had enough. It's over, he says. Take your sharp sickle and cut off those clusters of grape. And the image there is of a a total severance. We're not just talking about pluck it lightly off, and maybe later you can reinsert it. The image is of a scythe that goes cut, and it's ripped off and uprooted from the earth, never to go back. This will be the day that the devil and every unbeliever will be uprooted from the earth and removed from the earth, never be here again. Because this earth, when it is renewed and heaven comes down, this is where we will live as the people of God. But what has been cut What has been harvested, what has been completely removed, is the devil and the demons and every unbeliever. They are in a different place. They will never reappear. They will be gone forever. Now that day is described 
In devastating detail in our text, we read the angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Now we understand that this is symbolic language. It will not literally happen on the day of judgment that unbelievers will be thrown into this humongous wine press. And then Jesus Christ and the angels will ratchet that down and their blood will flow through the streets, even as high as the horse's bridles for 1600 stadia. That's not literally going to happen. But the truth is worse than this symbol. The symbol of God's wine press, the symbol of blood flowing up to the horse's bridles, points to the horrifying, sickening reality of what will happen to every unbeliever on the last day of the world. When our Lord Jesus Christ returns on the clouds of heaven, then as we know from Scripture, everybody will see him. There won't be one person in the world who doesn't see him. And there won't be one person who doesn't know who he is. Everybody will recognize him as the Son of God, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, who is bringing this world and history to its final outcome. Everybody will recognize it. And it will be a horrifying, sickening feeling in the hearts of unbelievers for them to realize that they have rejected this person and that they have no future with him. Now, some people think that what our text is saying, especially when it talks about the, the uh, or what we mentioned this morning, the burning sulfur and so on, that they will be annihilated. They will not be. They will spend eternity in this state of horror. They will watch as Jesus Christ tenderly comes to every believer, wipes away the tear from their eyes, embraces them, gives them a garment of righteousness and says, come with me and enjoy with me the wedding feast of the Lamb. They will stand as outsiders looking in at this beautiful occasion. They will knock at the door and say, can we come in too? No, says the bridegroom. I gave you time. I gave you opportunity. I gave you the gospel. You were not ready. You are outside forever. They will turn to the devil. So what have you got to offer us? We have no place, no future with this Jesus Christ or the kingdom of heaven. But you, we served you. What have you got to offer for us? And they will see the devil sweating in fear, cowering in the ground. What's wrong with you, devil? We thought you were the man. You were our leader. Didn't you understand, says Satan? I was always afraid. I convinced you that I was the one to follow. I convinced you that I had something to offer you. But Jesus Christ, he conquered me already on the cross of Golgotha. I have a wound. I have been broken. And I am afraid. Why did you do this, Satan? Because I hate you, people. I hate God. I hate this world. I hate every human being. I hate you. I made your life a mess. You know what? This is your life. This is my world. A world of fear. A world of 
horror, a world without rest. Welcome to your world, people. You rejected Jesus. You want me? You got me for eternity. Welcome to hell. Welcome to torment. Welcome to weeping and gnashing of teeth eternally. And when our text says this, this continues for 1,600 stadia, to be honest, there's so many interpretations of that number, I don't know for sure what it means. But it is a number that somehow symbolizes completeness. There will not be one unbeliever who escapes that horrible day of being locked outside the kingdom of, of heaven and thrown into the arms of Satan to be tormented forever. This will all happen, as our text says, outside the city. The city is the new Jerusalem. The city is a a new world. And it's striking that when our Lord Jesus Christ was crucified, he was crucified outside the city. We cannot help but think of Hebrews 13 where we read, Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. We see our Lord Jesus Christ outside the city, hanging on a cross. He's bloody. He's sweaty. He's mocked by the world. He's ridiculed by the devil. But he's your Lord. And he's your Savior. And he's dying there in the midst of horror and torment with the smell of hell all around him. Eternal darkness settling in. He died for your sins. Go to him outside the city. And as he hangs, dying with his face bent to the ground, if you can, stand on tiptoe and kiss him. The man of blood, the man of sweat, the man who died for your sins. But he died so that your sins could be washed away. He died so that you could give, give you a future and a hope in a city whose architect and builder is God himself. Do not be ashamed. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. Stand tall and strong in this world. Serve him. Know that he is ruling this world and one day he will return. Horrible for unbeliever, but for you who believed in him and held on to him and served him in every thought, word, and deed, he will put his arms around you and he will bring you into that city into an eternity of joy. This is the encouragement. This is the comfort that our text gives to us. Amen.